3: Hey everybody, welcome back. Well, we haven't been back for a while. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. It's your boy. No, <laughs> oh my, that is getting clipped. No, that's getting clipped. No, out. no, no. It's sorry. No, no, it's fine. Okay, keep right. it. Don't don't keep,
2: introduce rolling. yourself. That's that's what we're doing. Here. No, it is. It is. It is me, of course. Your friend, your colleague. I am Nick Savarian. Proud
3: to continue with you on the show. Oh man, what an intro! <laughs> Listen, on today's program. Uh, Texas, I I mean, that's it. That's the punchline. That's all you got to (laughs) do. Right. Exactly. (laughs) DeSantis keeps battling uh, President Biden and Nicki Minaj recently got her Twitter epidemiology license. Did you know that, Nick? I didn't Uh, know you could get one. That's awesome. Yeah, she just got one and upgraded to epidemiologist from rapper to epidemiologist. Um, And also joining us on the program later, Dr. Amy Scallon. She's the associate director of clinical practice over at Temple University and also the director of the teacher residency program there. She's going to be talking to us about this fantastic article that she wrote in Sage Journals about teacher retention. You know, there's been a lot of people leaving the teacher profession she did an in-depth study with a colleague of hers from another university. So she's going to take us through that later on in the program. Nick, first, I, like I said, I said hello to you. Um, we have been on a sabbatical for a few weeks. How's everything? How's been the, uh, the break? Break's been good. I mean,
2: the big highlight for us is our, our oldest is in first grade. You know, she's done a couple of weeks. She's, she's still still liking it. Her favorite class is recess, which has made me a little worried, but but she's killing it in all of her stuff that she brings home. So all is good, man. You know, we're, we're we're just doing well. It's adjusting to life. Only have to worry about one crazy kid in the house
3: is, is right, a good right. thing. Uh, let's get into the news, Nick, because there is so much news making headlines, specifically some of it emanating from just two states. And that's what we're going to get into. Can I guess t- which two? No, you cannot guess which two. Then everyone here that's listening to the show is now going to know where you lean politically. All right. We're going to get into first the Texas legislation that has recently passed. Texas has recently done three different pieces of legislation uh, that two have been signed by Governor Abbott into law. One, obviously, about the Texas near total abortion ban. Um, I wanted to play a clip real quick explaining what the new law restricting access to abortions uh, in the state of Texas actually is. Here's a summation of it.
0: Here, however, because you don't have a state official charged with enforcing it to sue, you can't get a pre-enforcement challenge or a pre-enforcement injunction. And that's basically what happened at the Supreme Court last Wednesday when the court finally weighed in saying that there were procedural idiosyncrasies here that were better to be resolved going forward by allowing the law to go into effect, having someone file suit against some other person and then letting it play out. So it doesn't mean we will not get a challenge to the constitutionality of this law, but it means that the law goes in effect in texas and that actually is a victory for texas legislators because once those clinics shut down because they fear violating this law and risking the bankrupting bounty that is placed on those who are found to be in violation of this law they're unlikely to reopen again even if the law is later invalidated by the supreme court or any federal court going forward and we saw that In 2016, with Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, there, there was an admitting privileges law that was allowed to go into effect in 2013. Although the law three years later was declared unconstitutional, Texas went from having 42 abortion provider clinics to having just 19, and they did not reopen again.
3: All right. So you heard that, right? Obviously, Texas' new abortion law bans abortions at about six weeks from the patient's last menstrual period, the rest on the actions of private citizens to enforce the law rather than government, while abortion patients themselves can't be sued under the new law, anyone who performs or aids with the abortion can be sued by almost anyone. Um, and, you know, a bunch of legal experts have obviously said the law dramatically expands the concept of a civil lawsuit. It's aimed at keeping providers from using the constitutional right to an abortion under Roe v. Wade as a legal defense. You just heard. Uh, from the law professor there from New York, NYU, uh, giving you a summation there. There's other legislation happening in the state of Texas with respect to voting rights. And obviously, their right to carry uh, without having to show identification. Nick, we're going to be doing in the coming weeks, we're going to have a correspondent on uh, from one of the major papers down there in Texas to kind of go over all of this in depth, but I really wanted to get at the abortion one because, you know, it's a sensitive topic. Uh, Women's reproductive rights, the state of Texas and what they're doing, you know, it it kind of struck a nerve with me. You know, my wife and I didn't find out that, that we were pregnant until she was about seven, eight weeks, I believe, Um, you know, because, uh, you know, her, she had missed her period, you know, and you're two weeks later. And um, again, not that we're going to get an abortion, but it's just you know this women's right to choose, right? The women's right to choose, and it's such a controversial topic. I don't know why, um, and we're going to have a correspondent explain it. But when you, uh, your your wife obviously works in the medical community, um, you see this new abortion law being passed in the state of Texas. What are some reactions from you? Yeah, it's it's basic. I mean, t- from a legal standpoint,
2: <clears throat> it's essentially Texas using an end around. You know, you can't directly go after people. Who've had an abortion, you know, because that brings you to you know standing in front of the Supreme Court, you know, and basically you know engaging in the precedent of, of Roe versus Wade, engaging in the press. I'm sounding too fancy, you're yeah. gonna get hit with that precedent. That's always going to happen. Right. And it's what Republicans have figured out. And the genius of this, and it is genius, believe it or not, is now rather than the government going directly after people, which you can't, we're gonna go ahead and empower people by giving them incentives. And you'll see me doing the money sign right here. Ten thousand dollars to basically dime out someone who performed the abortion. Mike, you used, to, you've been, you've worked with Golf Channel or Golf TV. I, I forget the network. Right. Golf TV. We talked about one of the most stupidest things we've ever heard: mm. is someone calling in during a tournament and saying, "Hey, I want someone violate something," right. and like judges actually catch this and are like, "Oh yeah, really?" And then they dock you a stroke or whatever. And that's an idiotic thing. Go ahead and scale that up now to the idea that someone's going to try to call you out or call you out for, for allegedly performing an abortion. And just simply by doing so, you could make some money. It's, it's shocking. Regardless of the party affiliation, in isolation, if I told you a state is out here incentivizing people to sue others, yeah, I didn't even tell you what the, what to sue about. You look at that. Any sensible person would look at that and say, that's, that's
3: crazy. Yeah. And and w- one thing I wanted to say was, and you heard in the summary there from the professor, um, this really is a, almost like a preventative thing. They're. They, they almost put it with like paper mache and we're like, look, we know people are going to try to run through this through litigation. You see lawsuits, the DOJ and about 20 states, AGs have already signed or at least backed the DOJ filing a lawsuit against this. So there's going to be a lot of challenges with it. But what happens is, like the professor mentioned in that clip, I mean, you can listen to the rest of that episode on uh, Pod Save America. They, she mentions it like they're going to shut down. Some of these places that give out this educational information are going to close down as a preventative measure. And so what does it do for Texas, right? It gets them, those businesses closed down and then yep. they they can't afford to open back up. The legal challenges take forever to contest. You drain money paying legal fees. So it's almost like a preventative measure in that regard. Um, the problem though, there
2: is that what may also happen though, is you may have people then seeking an illegal abortion, oh. illegal in the standpoint of, yes, Texas, but also one that's not safely performed, you're dealing now with a women's rights issue, a women's health issue. So suddenly these same women who couldn't have an abortion performed the way it should. If you're going to make that choice, and again, what where Mike and I stand on this is none no one's business, honestly. Correct. But so now you have women that are gonna potentially go into the ER are gonna need medical services because they had to have an abortion for one reason or the other, whether you agree with it or not, but that is the trend. And at the same time, you know what I also come back to is we all remember what happened in the state of North Carolina with what was, you know, their their quote unquote bathroom law, you know, a few years back. And this idea that, you know, we're going to mandate bathrooms as being like individual sex. We're not going to try to embrace or have any, you know, reference to LGBTQ and just simply say, you know, men go to this bathroom, women go to this other one. It resulted in the governor losing that race for one specific reason. The NCAA went ahead and said, you do that, we will pull out. We will make sure we will not have tournaments in this state. And the money, when you start to add up how much that cost, it was a sizable hit to North Carolina's pocket. What do you think happens now in Texas when suddenly folks like Matthew McConaughey say, you know what? I'm going to have some issues with that. I think he's a diehard you know, fan of University of Texas, obviously, but I, there, there's a ripple effect here not to mention the fact that you know we've also seen recent reporting that you know a lot of people started moving to Texas. A lot of companies have started to yeah. come to Texas for cheaper land from the tech sector. That speaks to California and Silicon Valley. If that stops and suddenly those businesses don't come, you're looking at stunted job growth and potentially less people entering the state. Less people means less property taxes. That's right. There is a larger problem here that this governor is going to run into. And if anything, this immediately puts on the table Texas being suddenly in play. Because anyone who politically leaned right, if you you are sympathetic at all to this cause, you may put aside the taxation issue. You may put aside the wall and any conservative arguments you want to make and recognize that what Governor Abbott just did is basically put a legal hit on any provider of abortions in the state. And could that be 51% of the electorate that is against it? Oh, well, nationally, we're a pro-state, we're a pro-choice country, actually, when you look at the demographics. right. So what happens in the state of Texas, which is already purple?
3: Right. No, absolutely right. A governor up for re-election too in 2022. We had Jessica Coggins on from the Texas Signal to talk about that gubernatorial race. And if Matthew McConaughey, like you mentioned, would actually jump into it. Let's shift gears here because the state of Florida, where I just left a few months back, has been in the news every single day. Um, governor DeSantis always going back and forth with President Joe Biden on mask mandates. Here's a clip of an exchange, not to each other, indirectly to each other, from uh, President Biden responding to uh, Governor DeSantis. Calling your vaccine requirements and overreach.
4: You are to challenge it in court. Have at it. Look, I am so um, disappointed that... Uh, particularly some of Republican governors, have been so cavalier with the health of these kids, so cavalier with the health of their communities. This is — this is — we're playing for real here. This isn't a game. And I don't know of any scientist out there in this field that doesn't think it makes considerable sense to do the six things I've suggested. One of the lessons I hope our students can unlearn is that politics doesn't have to be this way. Politics doesn't have to be this way. They're growing up in an environment where they see it's like a — like a war, like a bitter feud. If the — if the Democrat says right, everybody says left. If the Democrat says left, they say right. I mean, it's not how we are. It's not who we are as a nation. And it's not how we beat every other crisis in our history.
2: Uh, We have a responsibility to stand up for the Constitution and to fight back. And we are doing that in the state of Florida. This order would result potentially in millions of Americans losing their jobs. I think we should be protecting people's jobs, not trying to kick people out of work right now.
3: So what are these two uh, talking about? Right. Obviously, DeSantis wrapping it in freedom and liberty and Joe Biden wrapping it in public health and safety. So here's, what, here's what's at hand with this issue. And we had Ellie Honig on from CNN to talk about vaccine mandates and what some of these private businesses and public companies could do, at least at the federal level, what could Biden do? So DeSantis recently issued a warning to businesses who follow uh, President Biden's vaccine mandate will be fined $5,000 per employee. Okay, this is when the, uh, Governor DeSantis gave the speech in Alchua County uh, Governor DeSantis said that any cities or counties in Florida that require public government employees to get vaccinated to keep their jobs will be charged five grand for every single violation with violators at risk of paying millions in dollars of fees. You heard what he said there about standing for the men and women who are serving us. Look, I, um, Nick and I, we've discussed this a bunch on the show, and obviously, Nick, your, your wife is a physician. We have mentioned it. We're both vaccinated. Our, our immediate families are vaccinated. You know, everybody within our family circles, let's say 60, 70, 80 people uh, and close friends are all vaccinated. We wear masks. I, I don't understand the intertwining of that. This is a political issue or not. And we're going to get into in our third segment about Nicki Minaj being a Twitter epidemiologist. But I say that because her messaging, while terrible, and we're going to get to that in a second, this is what's happening right now. The messaging part of this is getting lost in it. Governor, uh, you know, President Biden is doing the right thing, going through OSHA and having this instituted at the federal level. There's, you know, when you, when you get a job at a new place, right? They, some places still drug test you, right? Anybody crying for freedom and liberties there when they're asking you to get drug tested at a job, Nick? That's a rhetorical question. You don't got to answer. So, and that's what's happening here. I think I, I like what, what President Biden is doing here. You and I both believe in the science in this, in the clinical trials. We've had friends that have participated in the clinical trials of this; they're both fine. Nobody's dead, you know. Like, like there's science and data behind this, and we're going to do an episode in the coming weeks with somebody from Health and Human Services, excuse me, coming on the program to talk about vaccine hesitancy. But here's the big problem with it: right? Um, You shouldn't be hesitant about something. That a very, very, very small number of people had had an adverse reaction to, like this vaccine has very high efficacies. The all of them from all of the providers: Pfizer, Moderna, and to a lesser extent Johnson and Johnson. But it's still even over eighty percent. Like the trials research has been done on these; they're safe and effective. Now, Nick and I are both not in the medical community. You got us there. Point for you here's the thing, though, we're going to have people on that are experts in these fields to come on to discuss this. And I just don't understand, you know, the, the, what DeSantis, what some other governors, you're seeing uh, a Governor Tate Reeves over in Mississippi doing the same thing, um, that just don't understand and are politicizing mask and, and and enforcement of mask mandates and vaccine mandates across the country. What are you seeing with some of this? What, give me some of your takes on on what's happening with DeSantis and Biden overall, and then the mass mandates overall? You know, I understand isolation. And you, folks, you'll see me
2: do, you'll hear me do that lie, use the isolation example, because I'm just simply saying that, you know, if I take this apart for a moment without any political persuasion, if you didn't know which way I voted, um, if I told you this in and of itself, like what would you interpret that as? And any sensible person probably would lean the way I think Mike and I do, regardless of your political affiliation. So if the federal government is saying that you must do X and the state that doesn't necessarily agree with the federal government says, we're not going to do it. I understand the argument. I truly do. Here's where the problem is. Currently, and the most important data points this currently anyone in a hospital, anyone in the hospital right now that is fighting the coronavirus, specifically now the Delta variant, 95% of those folks are unvaccinated. I don't think there's any more da- important data point you need to understand. We're talking about where the place where people that are choosing not to get vaccinated, and it is a choice, because if you're over, you know, if you're 12 years and over, you have access to this. You are choosing not to. And those who are choosing not to are the ones most likely to end up in the hospital. Argue against science all you want, but that's the data you have to pay attention to. And what we're seeing is, and Mike, to your point, it's such a high efficacy rate that's telling us this thing makes sense. So when you have Joe Rogan telling us that he's take horse medicine instead, um, you have other people that are pushing for this. We saw recently, and I forget the state that this happened, but um, you know, a spouse was demanding a hospital give that to her husband rather than the COVID vaccine, and then you know another you know between lawyers, another you know judge stepped forward and said, like, "No, hospitals can't do that. That is not that is not the proven treatment." You, know, you can't play politics, you know, within the hospital room. So you know, everything tells us that the vaccine works, and everything tells us that people who are right now fighting COVID in the hospital are the unvaccinated. So if you pair those two things together, the only reality you come to is that the vaccines are important. Now, if the state of Florida wants to tell the president that you know you can't tell us what to do on this one, can't tell us about masks, can't tell us about vaccines. What's going to happen is what is what is about to happen is let this play out in court, and that's where Biden's response, which essentially is a very seventy-year-old way of saying "come at me, bro," that's the same same idea. Um, And they'll play it out in court, and I don't know which way it goes. Just constitutionally, from what little I know, you know, this is not necessarily under the purview of the federal government. But what is under the purview of the federal government is trying to protect its citizens. And when a state is trying to out, outright say that we're not going to you know, ensure that everyone has, is forced to take, you take the vaccine, the federal government get, get, can come forward and say that like, we're going to test you on this one. Um, the, really, the, uh, the other ironic thing, politically for a moment, is that the party of business, the party of big business, which is the Republican Party, are the same people now that are going after businesses and finding them for mandating vaccines. It's wild to me that the party that prides itself on letting businesses effectively do what they want, Republicans never want to see any regulation, right? That's that's their big thing. Let the market decide. Let the market decide. Are now telling businesses, well, if you do this, we'll fine you. So you're now a business in Florida and you're going to have to take on this cost. What's stopping you from staying in that state? What's stopping you from moving to potentially another area where you get potentially a better break or you don't face that kind of pressure from, from a governor like DeSantis? And I think it's important to bring that up. It's important for us to all recognize that there's a, there's a hypocrisy here, regardless of whatever way you lean politically, that, that's pointing to the fact that Republicans are suddenly turning on businesses who happen to be siding with the vaccine. Yeah. And at the end, we see that in Texas, too. Like Texas is finding ways to you know, put it to, in that case, it's abortion clinics and finding a way to financially squeeze them. Because again, yeah. you can't go
3: after them directly, but you find indirect ways. And DeSantis is doing the same thing with finding. You know, recent polling has shown that uh, over 69% of Americans actually uh, op- do not oppose vaccine mandates. They are actually for the vaccine mandates. Uh, Larry Ghostin, a faculty director at Georgetown University's O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law. Uh, He believes that Congress has already granted the president authority to do what he's doing under the OSHA uh, Act. Obviously, he recently said, in my view, the president's on rock solid legal ground. He's acting under a direct authority and Congress has ample authority, ample constitutional power to grant this power to the president because businesses, particularly large businesses, which is what Biden's. uh, OSHA redirect, let's call it, uh, is 100 employees or more, uh, that they have to be vaccinated. Or, by the way, people always forget the or part, or they have to submit to regular testing. That's the other part of this. So the people that are yelling freedom and liberty, uh, you're, you're not understanding that you don't necessarily have to get vaccinated. You should, but you don't have to. You just have to submit to regular testing, whether or not it's covered by the the business itself. Who knows? hear me out. You could lose your job. You can yeah. quit, go ahead and try to pay your bills, and find somewhere where you don't have to get it. Well, listen, so, yeah. we had Ellie Honig on, right? We talked about this a few, uh, a, a few weeks back. And the, the example case in point was the National Football League and the laws that they had uh, been putting in for team employees, right? And Urban Meyer, a coach for the Jacksonville Jaguars, said that, I don't know if it was on or off the record, that vaccinations played a role into some of the cuts. That he was doing because they're finding teams that are not fully up to vaccination rates. Or if if you have enough players that can't play because of COVID or something like that, and you have contact tracing and people have to sit out, you could forfeit a game that costs money, players checks. So there's already precedent for this. You're seeing it play out in sports. And obviously, we're going to see what happens with the legal challenges uh, post this. Let's shift real quick before our, our guest, Dr. Scallon, comes on the program. Nicki Minaj, Nick, that's it. You
2: understand that's... that you've now pivoted this show and I love you for this. Yeah. Once you do this, you open this door and say some wild stuff about a celebrity. Not untrue. I'm fascinated by the next person that comes on. I'm putting money on the table, proverbially that Kanye somehow gets talked about in a couple <laughs> weeks. Just saying, just saying, continue.
3: Well, listen, here's what happened, folks. Okay. For those of you that have been living under a rock, for the last couple of days, or maybe some of you that don't, or you have, don't have Twitter. It's one right. of the. You don't have Twitter, right? It's got to be one of two things: rock or Twitter. Uh, superstar rapper, and that's a generous title. Nicki Whoa, Minaj. What's, no, I'll no, give no, no, you no. A rapper. Superstar
2: is debatable these
3: days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I said it. Nicki Minaj re- uh, posted recently, last week, in fact, uh, a, a tweet that said that her cousin's friend in Trinidad had developed a a reaction to the vaccine, enlarging a part of his, enlarging a part of his body. This is very tough to read, by the way, enlarging a part of his body. Um, Obviously the Trinidad health minister comes out, shuts down the the claim. They could find no such evidence of any patient or any body that has gotten the vaccine, having this type of side effect. You've got Dr. Fauci being asked it on the Sunday shows. Uh, You've got Different correspondents and opinion hosts like Joy Ann Reed talking about this. I want to play a clip. Okay, I want to play a clip from our favorite person, Nick, Tucker Carlson.
4: Of course. Talking about,
3: talking about Nicki Minaj. Listen to this.
2: It's Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's testicles who are swollen from taking the vax. That's the claim. But it's not anything to do with the physical effect of the vaccine that makes our political class mad. It's the last part of Nicki Minaj's tweet that enrages them. The part where she says you should prey on it, make the decision yourself.
3: It's even gotten into Tucker Carlson's backyard now where he's inviting this this supposed cousin on the program. Look, I don't want to get into, <laughs> I don't want to get Look, into- have
2: to say, by the way, what yeah. was
3: enlarged? I don't think I didn't catch you on that. You're no, like, enlarged no, no, no. part I'm, of the body. Right. right. And enlarged part of the lower body. What? If this was if this was an injury report for Bill Belichick, it would say lower abdomen injury. <laughs> um, and so I don't want to get into the absurdity of that. I want to get into- You got into the absurdity the second you said they can by the way. Right, 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 right. <laughs> We're a news commentary program, by the way. So listen, here's the major issue I have. We did this with Joe Rogan. Uh, When we had the read the room segments, and Nicki Minaj is a candidate for this read the room segment over on Patreon. But the the big thing is here is the 22.6 million people that follow her on Twitter. The other Mm -hmm. millions that follow her on Facebook that maybe are not carried over across platforms, the millions of Instagram followers, the people that actually look up to this person. And just like with our show, Nick, when we post something on social media, Right, we're trying to get a percentage, an X percentage of engagement, right, and an X percentage of people that convert over and listen to our program. Nicki Minaj posts a tweet like that, right, that says to prey on it and to that that it you know it's up to you and giving you a false scenario that the Department of Health in Trinidad has refuted and says they they can't find a the cousin's friend nobody of this record and B, anybody that's actually had this type of side effect happen to them as a result of taking the vaccine. So she's already starting the, the, the preamble of the sentence with a false hood. And that's the problem. It's that the percentage of people are going to pick up on that, listen to this woman word for word and say, now I'm not going to get vaccinated. And that is a problem. You have a right to be stupid and then you have a right to do what she's been doing, which is doubling and tripling down, getting into a Twitter exchange with Piers Morgan, which which went way off the tangent saying she's never met him. And then he shows a clip of them meeting at <laughs> like so it's just gone way he's off. All, the, he's also awfully forgettable, too. I mean, it's, you are, it's correct. Unfair. Correct. But it was on America's Got Talent. But regardless of that. At the bare bones of this, and this is what I really want to get into before we bring out Dr. Scallon, and she's going to love the intro of Nicki Minaj leading into her uh, teacher retention uh, study, but the, the, the big issue is the platform, the voice that you have, the words that actually matter, to keep that to yourself. Keep that to yourself, a, a, a falsehood that's been proven out by the Department of Health, the, the minister the minister of of health in Trinidad comes out with a press conference. I'm not going to play the clip here, but saying we have no record of this person that lives in this country. We have no record of anybody that's had side effects from the vaccination, like she mentioned on Twitter. And now you have the director of the NIH, Dr. Anthony Fauci, having to answer a question about Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend. I mean, come on. The absurdity of this entire situation is is a microcosm of what's happening in the United States, but at large is the issue of her followers, the small, albeit it may be small, it may be larger, of people that are already on the fence that are going to say, look what happened to Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend, and now I'm not going to get it. It, I, I have never been more enraged at seeing something And watching it play out over the course of the media cycle, it's been kept in the loop from all the major networks. Now you're having health professionals talk about this. And now that it's been proven that it's not true, it's even more infuriating because that misinformation was allowed to sit there and trickle to the millions of followers that she have. I want to get your take real quick before we bring on Dr. Scallon. I mean, theres I don't even know how to
2: begin on peeling this onion of absurdity, but so first and foremost... Know why are we paying attention? Like when someone leads off with, you know, my cousin's friend from overseas had this thing happen. And then there's like that alone should have all told us something's up. Um, the fact that it's being asked, you know, up you know, to someone up there like Dr. Fauci, it tells you the power of social media, it tells you the relationship between social media and and the news. And Mike, you and I have talked about this, you know, on a couple of episodes. You know, we've talked about sometimes. You know that the media falls into this trap of basically having to report report absurdity, and and so we're basically bringing into reality, and it, it is a little akin to professional wrestling in this case, and that's what Tucker Carlson's you know stock and trade is. It is alarming, and the it does connect with me an important data point is that right now, the age demographic that seems to be like really kind of struggling with getting vaccinated is actually the 12 to 18 year olds, like 12 to 25 year olds. That's not the most prominent group getting the vaccine. It's actually senior citizens. And there's obvious reasons why. So when you say, you know, 22 million followers, if I were to basically cut it up as a pie chart, like what percentage of those people fall between the age of 12 to like, say 25, what are we saying? 60%, 70%. So it's, she's hitting that target group of people who are already skeptical. Um, At at the same time, though, it's hard for me not to say this, but if you are at all taking the words of Nicki Minaj in, in in a medical discussion seriously at all, you already are a victim of a poor education. And we're going to bring on someone eventually who talks about how the educational system can be vastly improved. But that already speaks to just a shocking level of misinformation. But it also does bring up an important point. Why is it? That someone like Nicki Minaj can be able to pass off this absurd story, and people of sizable portion of people may take it seriously. Whereas, you know, when someone like Dr. Fauci, when you have other medical professionals come forward, that it's met with more skepticism. And that's a larger conversation about yeah. education, but it's also a larger discussion of of who are we willing to trust.
3: You know, it is the biggest reason, and we've mentioned it a bunch on this show, the different episodes that we've done. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We've talked about, you know, systemic racism. We've had professors on, we've had historians on, we've had journalists on that are covering it. Uh, we've had lawyers on to talk about legal issues. Nick, you and I do two different things out there, obviously, and we connect for this show. But what we don't know about, we bring somebody on that's an expert. We rely on experts in their field. I don't take my car to the guy who makes my sandwich at the deli. I take it to a mechanic. We can argue about whether or not the mechanic is for profit. Everybody's for profit. We can argue about that all day. But at the end of the day, we have to start getting back to a place where we're trusting people at, that are experts in their field, that have years of experience in their field. And it's a bit—it a perfect segue, by the way, because the people that teach, the young ones, the next generation, when we come back after the break, Dr. Scanlon is going to be joining us. Nick, today's episode of the podcast is presented by the good folks at DB Journey. It's a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. DB Journey is the only luggage you need, award-winning luggage. Nick, are you going, you, you've been to DB before? I have
2: been, man. Look, I don't know for any of you people that are traveling with kids, and it doesn't even have to be serious traveling, but like I mean, I was down in Delaware with some friends and my family recently. You know, and DB stuff's helpful because you, you gotta be able to have things attached. I don't again, if you travel with kids, it's the little things like where's the snack bag and the diaper bag and all kinds of stuff. You know, DB is great because you get a chance to just kind of just have those things attached. It just makes what? it simple. You don't have to worry about bigger bags and all that nonsense.
3: Just You know, just think utility, think,
2: you know, think efficiency.
3: And that's that's where that's where DB comes in. Boy, they're going to love that you said that because with DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller and tote from the streets to the peaks. DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers and creators. We're teaming up with them. So exclusively right now for our listeners, whatever audio podcast platform you're listening to there's a link in the show notes there. Click on it. Enter the promo code when you're done at checkout, buying whatever you want to buy, as Nick mentioned. You put the promo promo code pod 10 and you're going to get 10% off your next purchase. All right, Nick, 10% off. Okay. You can't use it though, Nick. All right. Actually, you know what? You can use it. You can use 10%. There you go. There you go. All right. Pod 10 at checkout DB journey. It's time to move on. It's time to get going. All right, like we mentioned at the top, Dr. Amy Scallon over at Temple University, who's an associate director of clinical practice is joining us on the program. Dr. Scallon, Mike Leon Nick Saveri, thank you so much for uh, hopping on the podcast with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. What a great opportunity.
3: Yeah, and we're not even going to tell them about the mistake I made in the first part of it. So, um, <laughs> moving on. Yes, correct. Uh, Dr. Scallon, uh, you know, uh, before we were t- uh, before you hopped on, we were talking about the article that you had published in the Sage Journal, and it talks about you know, teacher perceptions of principal leadership practices that influence teacher turnover. So I would love for you to take our audience into that article. Uh, give us a little bit of background and context.
1: Sure, absolutely. This is an article that I worked on with um, one of my colleagues over at uh, UC Berkeley, Travis Bristol. He was so fantastic to work with. Uh, We collected the data a few years back. We did uh, four different case studies. So we looked at two high turnover schools and two low turnover schools in terms of teachers. Right. So two schools were oftentimes teachers left and two schools where teachers stayed for a long time. Um, They were middle schools in a large urban district, and we were looking at factors affecting teacher turnover. And we decided to look at the data. That was part of a larger project, but we decided to go off on our own a couple of years later and look at this idea. We felt as though there's this gap in the research, right? When, if, if you're in the ed world, you know the different factors that contribute to teacher turnover. But we wanted to look at really what teachers were saying about what leaders were doing in their building that were affecting them and how their choices were affecting them about whether they wanted to remain in that school, whether it was a good place for them, or they were going to change schools because it wasn't such a great place for them. So we spent a year in four different schools. Um, Travis had two, and I had two. And we interviewed a bunch of teachers, we interviewed 32 teachers, um, and we observed them in different contexts. We observed the the teachers, the principals, the leaders, the children uh, throughout the school as well. Um, and you know we had a lot of different findings, but the, the most prevalent findings that we focused the paper on were, were three. We really focused the, um, the paper on three findings. So one was that um, recognizing teachers as knowledgeable contributors was really important to teachers, right? So valuing what they had to say, valuing their practice, trusting them to make right decisions and giving them responsibility, right? So not just saying, this is how we're gonna do it because I said so, but asking teachers, well, what's your opinion? What do you think, right? And why don't you make some of those instructional choices in the classroom, because I trust you to do that. So that was one of the big findings. Another big finding was clearly communicating the school's vision around high quality teaching. And then the last, um, and I can go more in depth in these findings, but these are just the general findings. The last big finding that we focused on was centering student learning. So of course you work in a school, it's about student learning. That's what it's about. But having the principal do things that showed they were focusing, actually, if you make it a little bit more nuanced, they were focusing on both supporting student learning and teacher learning. It wasn't enough to just say, I believe in students, we're gonna advocate for the students, but they also had to trust the teachers as well. Back to that first finding about trusting the teachers to do their job effectively.
2: Dr. Scanlon, what were some of the challenges that you all uh, encountered in conducting this this
1: research? Some of the challenges. I mean, obviously logistics are hard, right? Um, It was really hard. I mean, there are a lot of schools in this city that we worked in, um, so it was really hard to find the perfect schools actually to do this uh, to do this research in that we thought would you know be more representative. Obviously, there again, there's so many nuances in schools, so it's hard to find schools that would represent. But we looked at all different data points, um, and it was a really extensive decision-making process actually in terms of determining those schools. Um, also, I mean honestly, we interviewed so many people. So trying to figure out what were those most important findings was a really, really long process. Um, But it was honestly, it was so interesting. And it was um, it was such it was such a fantastic experience, to be totally honest with you working on that research project.
2: What did you and your what did you and your co author find most surprising about the results just from from your study?
1: So here's the thing in our larger study, we didn't really find anything that was surprising, right? There has been so much research done on teacher turnover and teacher retention because it's such an issue in this country. So there's been a ton of focus on it, which makes complete sense. And that's why we decided to relook at the data, right? To look at this more nuanced perspective of, well, let's see beyond, like we know if, if you look into Ed, um, research and and research on teacher uh, attrition, retention, turnover, the biggest factor, I bet you can guess, right? The biggest factor in whether teachers decide to stay at the school is
4: their principal.
1: Yeah, the principal. Exactly. It is absolutely the principal. That is the number one factor. And then the second factor is working conditions. Um, But we wanted to look at, so what exactly is the principal doing and how are the teachers experiencing what they're doing to actually put that into practice? Because then, you know, leaders can look at that and say, they can evaluate their practice and say, okay, you know what, actually, maybe I do give a lot of orders and not get the perspective of the teachers and the feedback from the teachers a lot. Maybe I could find ways to integrate that into my leadership practice more often like we wanted to to do something we wanted to focus those research questions on something that was tangible and practice based that people could actually use
3: That's sound uh I, I mentioned or if i didn't that you work at the uh, you're the director of the teacher resident, residency program excuse me at temple um so i know a bunch of teachers that have just come into the workforce a few that are in the state of florida Uh, My best friend is a principal here in a a prominent school in New York. What is some advice that you would give if someone's listening that that wants to enter the teacher profession uh, based on the study that you did retention? Like, what are some things that they can look for? Just like we've given other career advice to other people entering different fields with different journalists and lawyers that we've had on the program. What is a piece of advice that you would give them based upon all your learnings, uh, the article that you did, the research that you did, and obviously what you're doing now at Temple?
1: So we have a huge emphasis in our program on hiring because that's such an important piece of the puzzle, right? So teacher preparation is really my focus. That's what I do and that's what I'm passionate about. Um, Hiring is a huge part of that. And I'll tell you, um, there's not an answer that's gonna fit everyone because my answer really is this, figure out what the right school is for you. And then, as you're looking at different schools and talking to different leaders, and you know different cities do it differently. Here in Philly, it's called um, site selection. So, as you're talking to the site selection committees, where it's you know a principal, a parent, a couple of teachers, the people who are going leading the interview process, know what questions you want to ask them. In terms of determining whether it's the right school for you, so that's going to vary vary by person, right? We can look at the at the um, research and say, just like we were talking about a minute ago, the administration is important, the working conditions are important, but what else is important to you, right? Do you want a large neighborhood school? Do you want a tiny little school? Do you want a school that has a particular focus, maybe a science school or a CTE school, um, or someone or a progressive or, you know, any of these different kind of innovative or progressive schools that do things like project-based instruction. Do you want to be able to work on a grade um, team, right? If you're in say middle school, if you teach seventh grade math, is it really important to you to work with other math teachers or other seventh grade teachers? Or would you like some more autonomy and would you like to be able to work by yourself? So taking the time to figure out what's important to you and then figuring out the questions you need to ask as you're looking for the job. Because honestly, my job at Temple changed a couple of years ago. We provide two years of support to our graduates, right? Because we understand that the first two years of teaching is is super challenging. So we provide additional support. Time ever I was able to go observe our graduates as first year teachers. And it was so clear to me when I went into their classrooms that the grads who took the time to determine a right school for themselves were so much far like farther ahead than those who maybe jumped on their first job offer because it wasn't a right fit, right? They didn't know enough about the school. So taking that time and believing, like, I'm hireable, right? There are a lot of teaching positions. I am hireable. I'm gonna find the right school for me even if I'm a first year teacher.
3: So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Scallon, Amy, if I may. Amy, please. Yes. Well, Amy, I'm I'm obviously in a different field and I work obviously in the television media space. So you you said something there about teachers assessing the situation before they take a job, right? You, you want to know about the fit, the company, et cetera, et cetera. We've had different journalists on. We've talked about obviously critical race theory, some of these other topics that teachers kind of get embroiled in. And, you know, I see some of this stuff play out in the media circles and you see, well, I, I, I react saying, I would hate to be a teacher right now, dealing with with some of this curriculum, right? Not necessarily, I, w- I want you to give your opinion on the curriculum, but it's, it's, it's almost like they're under the microscope and then parents in different counties are making it even harder. Is any of that, at the root of the cause for some of this turnover that you've seen that your research for people that haven't read the, the piece. Um, is, is some of that at the root of it?
1: So listen, being a teacher is hard work, right? Since the inception of teaching in this country, it, it has been a profession that has not been looked upon as prestigious, as something that's truly valued in this country, which just boggles my mind. Right. So I personally, obviously, I'm biased. I've been in education since I graduated college. Right. I've been in education for 20 plus years. And I think it should be the most important position because you are you're working with the next generation. Right. You're you're developing our future every single day. So I just wanna lay that out there first because I think that always teaching, teaching, excuse me, is hard work. I think today, absolutely. I think that many teachers are feeling burnt out, right? Because of A, they had to face the pandemic, right? I mean, you go from a normal teaching year, which is already challenging. I don't care where you're teaching, it is challenging to all of a sudden, your, your world basically explodes right? You've got to all of a sudden start teaching online. So many different things are happening. There's directions from every single direction coming at you. You're not sure where to go. So I think that, I think it's honestly, it's really hard. And it's hard because I've been out of the classroom for a few years now, but I do work with teachers, not only the the resident teachers who are learning how to be teachers, but they're mentor teachers who have been teaching anywhere from 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, some of them, continue to look at and remember the importance of your role, which I think can be extremely hard, Right remember why you're there and what you're doing and how important it is. It's so easy to lose sight of that because there are so many different things coming at you all the time, but I think that the teachers who are able to prevail, right, in these really challenging times are the teachers who just hang on to and stay rooted and grounded in why they came into the profession in the first place.
2: To to our listeners, you know, thinking about the findings from your article mm-hmm. beyond the education space. What connection do you draw? Because you mentioned we, you know, talked a moment ago about you know that simple reality is that one's direct supervisor plays the largest role in whether someone stays in their profession, and that's that's true beyond education. Um, when you think of the findings from from the article, where do you see that connection to to any employee in any position where they are?
1: I mean, I guess I'd say the first finding is probably the most applicable, right? The recognizing teachers or workers, employees, whoever you want to say, as knowledgeable contributors, right? I mean, everyone wants to be a part of the discussion, right? Wants to contribute their ideas, wants to be able to trust the leader who they're working with or their boss or someone who's above them, but also be able to say, hey, this is my expertise. These are my expectations. And also vice versa, be trusted to do your job well, right? That's sometimes back to teachers. That's sometimes part of the problem, right? A lot of times people think because they've been through school, they know how to be a teacher, but it's not that easy, right? It's, It's a profession that people train how to do, and they learn how to do. So I would say that first finding is the most applicable,
2: for you in, in your residency program, I remember you and I talked before you know, they show if I remember correctly your the students in your program are essentially pursuing teaching as a, as a second profession or a third. Am I correct in that?
1: So a lot of them are and some of them come straight out of college. Okay So there's a wide variety. They range honestly from their early 20s into their 60s. Uh, which actually makes for such an interesting cohort of people working together and learning from each other. Um, We started out as a STEM-based program. So we got lots of career changers, engineers, um, people who had full, full careers in engineering, people who had done it for maybe five years and say in college, they tutored kids or, you know, worked in some capacity with kids and they weren't feeling fulfilled as they were, doing their engineering job or working in that chem lab. But that experience in college working with kids stuck with them. So they came back. Um, so we really have a wide variety of people in the program, which, which I think is is great because they learn so much from each other.
2: Do you see the potential future in that? And you mentioned just a diverse cohort you know, from a variety of experiences. Does there seem to be the potential of a trend that we may see more people entering the teaching force who are coming at it you know coming from other fields only in the sense that i wonder for someone who is in their 20s going into a profession that is vastly underpaid i think anyone that does any studies on any level of income understanding the you know the importance of the profession versus actually what it you know comes down to from a median income standpoint does that set the stage potentially for people that may spe- spend more time in the professional space and think of stepping into education at a later time
1: you know I don't know how to answer that. I wish I could say yes. Frankly, I really wish I could say yes, but I I've, I've got to tell you after having the past several years recruited people who have STEM backgrounds, they have so many more options. Hmm. Right? If you have a degree in engineering, you have a degree in organic chemistry or mathematics, you have wide doors, right? That make a lot more money than as you mentioned the the really meager salary that the teachers start with even with a master's degree. So I I do think that um, having these kinds of preparation programs that are highly immersive, highly supportive, you know, they're working with a mentor teacher the entire year. I mentioned those mentors that we have, they're in their classroom working together and learning from them for an entire year. They're given financial support the school district of philadelphia gives them a salary gives them benefits gives them a tuition award so it's setting them up for a more successful start because it's giving them that foundation so i do think for people who are looking for a really meaningful career um absolutely the under the underpayment of teachers is a real problem i mean it's oh
3: yeah there's no way around it i mean there's no <laughs> I, think way around sum- it. I think you summed it up best uh yeah, I think yeah. that's a great way to sum Nothing it up. Nothing else to say about that. <laughs> right. If you're a Temple University uh, student, grad student right now, you're in the teacher residency program, you are blessed for Dr. Amy Scallon to be a part of that. Uh, Dr. Scallon, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us today. Continued success and and uh, keep up the great work that you're doing.
1: Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
3: All right. That was Dr. Amy Scallon. Like I mentioned, Associate Director of Clinical Practice over at Temple University, She's also the director of the teacher residency program. So she helps out there. If you want to check out the piece that she wrote um, in conjunction with Travis, like she mentioned from from UC Berkeley, there's going to be a link in our audio podcast platform show notes right now. You can click on that link um, and that'll take you to Dr. Scanlon. You can reach out to her directly. If you're thinking about entering the teaching space, uh, Nick highly recommends her. I highly recommend her after meeting her. That was a fantastic interview, um, and she was able to shed a lot of insight um, uh, as to what's happening. You know, you 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 see news about different people, specifically police police officers. Uh, it's been down the rate of hires for police officers around the country. Same thing's been happening for teachers, and then the turnover rate's been happening. You know, she told us off air about the city of Philadelphia, you know, and how many people, how many teachers they hire on a yearly basis, and it's a lot, you know. So that's a huge issue. Uh, Like I mentioned, in the audio podcast platform, you want to reach out to Dr. Scowlin. You're thinking about entering the the teaching profession. Reach out to her. Um, She was a fantastic listener, fantastic guest. For this episode, for this show, excuse me, YouTube video. You know, you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch the clips of all of this on YouTube. Nick is smashing the button. If you head to the show notes right now, whatever audio podcast platform, click on that Patreon link, become a Patreon subscriber, price of a cup of coffee and a bagel. Uh, You will get to see some bonus content and hear some exclusive stuff from some of our interviews of folks that we've had on the show in the coming weeks. Like we mentioned, we're going to have a bunch of different cool topics and and guests joining us from all across the news and politics landscape and and including a doctor that's going to be coming on the program to talk about vaccine hesitancy. As always, I'm Mike Leon. You all saw Monday night. Just win, baby. I'm Nick Saveri. That's right. Take care, everybody. Later.